what organizations turn to is this doubling down on DEI training, which has its place and is, is great. There are a few things with that though. They, you, you know, it's not a one and done. So you can't just bring in a consultant, have DEI, and then forget about it. I really feel as though, you know, leaders need to begin within themselves and look within because that's really what culture, culture is created by individuals. So the individuals need to look within and change themselves individually and look at their biases. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, a Quantivos coach and the host of Conversations. With me today are two of our coaches. First, I'd like to introduce Shannon Coleman-Siciliano. Welcome, Shannon. Hi, thanks for having me. And Robert Naylor, welcome. Hi, Brian, thanks for having me. Our topic today is supporting leaders of color. And my first question is, why is it important to support leaders of color any differently than one would support other leaders? Well, one, one of the things I'd like to talk about, which I hope directly answers your question, is that one of the reasons to do it is because what we tend to think of as, as professional standards are often much more subjective than we believe they are. And they tend to be based, standards tend to be based on norms that are common among a group of people. And so people of color are often left out of those norms, that the norms are, are different. And so people are left trying to live up to expectations that are just are not natural to them. And they, they seem like second nature to people from whatever the prevailing culture may be, but they are not necessarily to people who are not part of that prevailing culture. And so if that's the case, then leaders of color do need a different kind of support. A, the understanding that what people think of as professional standards are often more subjective than they are but also in sort of explaining those standards, how to meet them, accepting challenges to them, tweaking them along the way. In an organization I worked for once, we were hiring interns. You know, we, we had a fairly lengthy process and we had a really good intern program. And we had a manager who insisted that she wanted her interns to have traveled abroad extensively. And well, you leave out several groups of people there. One, you leave out poor people. And you leave out a lot of people of color, you know, unless they happen to have been, you know, immigrants themselves. And it's just, it seems like a, a sensible thing, except when you start to look at who it affects. And I think standards in, in a lot of ways are across the board are like that, that they're just based on whatever the norms of the prevailing culture are. Yeah, I agree, Robert. And I would also add a good manager is not going to manage everyone the same. And leaders of color and organizations and companies have a unique set of challenges, perspectives, uh, and what they bring to the table. And so therefore there should be a difference in how they're supported and how they are developed as well. It would be helpful, I think, for our audience to 
have some mini case studies or examples of what you're talking about when you're talking about standards and, and so forth? So often professional standards are based on traits that we like a certain kind of temperament, we like certain educational institutions, we like certain kinds of coursework, and, and we start trying to dig a little bit deeper beyond just what the educational levels are, who people really are. We sort of look, and, and I think it's innate, we sort of look for a bit of ourselves and the people that we recruit and that we hire. And so the more different someone is from us, the less likely they are to seem like us. And then we begin to think they don't cut it because, you know, I'm looking for these traits and, and, uh, and very often they, you know, it, it has nothing to do with or very little to do with what people are capable of doing. It's just, it's just this idea of, I want to be around people I'm comfortable with, who I relate to. Uh, I want to, I want to hire a mini up and coming version of myself. You know, which is I don't think is good for any organization. I don't think good hiring managers do that. And I think the the more we do that, the more more often we are likely to to uh, either leave out people who are different from us, or in once we get them in the organization, the more likely we are, the less likely we are to provide the right kind of support for them. You know, it's similar to the water cooler idea, and a lot of leaders that I support are having quite a bit of anxiety going back to the office. And one of the reasons why is because of this, you know, the, the water cooler culture of cliques that are formed or people who, you know, get together, have lunch together. And often it's the employees or the leaders of color who aren't in with, you know, the norms or um, the majority culture that exists in an organization. So they feel ostracized, they feel left out. So then they actually physically, you know, keep themselves separate. But to Robert's point, then they're looked upon as, oh, well, you know, they're not a team player or um, they, they don't really have what it takes. And you start to see promotions and teams that are getting built with those who are members of the water cooler culture versus those who are not. Shannon, I, I want to build more on that. There's a lot of research now about the first rung and women entering the workplace and not getting past that first rung into that initial promotion. And that challenge is even more significant for women of color. And so we see very few women of color advance to any significant level in most organizations. And one of the things that I have encountered coaching some of those women is how frequently they are called on to represent people of color across the organization as if all people of color are the same. Yeah. To expect one person to speak on behalf of an entire culture or an entire gender, an entire race, it adds additional pressure on that person. And, you know, it also leads to what is out there in the ether of representational burnout. So that leader who is constantly being asked to represent a whole, represent a culture, a race, a gender, they start to feel what some would call imposter syndrome. But imposter syndrome actually is not what's happening here because imposter syndrome puts the onus on that leader oh, they're not feeling good enough. Well, no, they're actually being burned out from having to constantly represent or feel like the only one at the table, uh, or not even just feel, to constantly be the only one at the table. 
And so there's a shift for leaders of color, especially for women leaders of color, this idea of moving away from the idea of imposter syndrome to representational burnout. That then puts the onus on the systems and the cultures that are in place that need to be changed instead of blaming the individual. I think there is also, and I and I agree with you 100%, Jenna, there, I think there's another problem with it is that women of color, people of color in workplaces often feel burdened to represent, even though they don't want to. I'm not the representative of everybody who looks like me because there are cultural differences across the board. But you know, you, you feel burdened to have to do it in a way to sort of make sure that the representations that do exist are as accurate as possible, you know, particularly in things like marketing and, and journalism in the field where I worked for a long time, where you're dealing with stereotypes and things like that. And you just feel a sense of burden to make sure that you put a stop to those things as early as you can. Yeah. And, you know, when you're in those meetings and you look around the room and you're the only one of whatever that is, yeah, you definitely feel that burden. Shannon, that's exactly where I was going to go next. I'd really like to hear from each of you what that experience is like. <laughs> that's... Yeah, <laughs> that's, um, well, I'll tell a story, a personal story of how that happened um, in a way for me. I had a position as an executive director for a significant campaign that was being run. And we had a fundraiser with a donor and it was going to be at the donor's house. Um, the donor was in relationship with a person of power. Let's just say, I don't want to give too many details, but you know, a person who either had political power or by their work power, but this person had, you know, some power, a white man, but I was really close to, to this person. And the donor asked and said, well, you know, is Shannon going to be okay coming to something like this? Is she going to feel okay coming to our house, you know, speaking to other donors? And so it was relayed back to me and I thought, why wouldn't I be okay? And I thought, oh, well, yeah, because I'm the only black person who's going to be in the room sitting at the table. And potentially the assumption is, is that I'm either not used to being the only black person, not used to being around people with power or not used to being around people with money. And in those, all those answers, I'm used to it all. <laughs> and so, you know, it was, I walked into that meeting feeling the burden of representation, feeling as though, hmm, there's a question as to what, literally a question as to whether or not I belong. And whether or not you were capable. Yes. Exactly. What I actually would like to take off on a little bit is the reactions that you often get when people suggest to you that their expectations of you weren't very high. And I certainly have those of my own. You know, I was talking to my nephew this morning about some situations at work, and, and he's very successful. He's the uh, North American General Counsel for a huge international corporation. But he worked before that for an American corporation that is one of the biggest companies in the world. And he had graduated from law school, and he had some really good in internships and clerkships. And he gets to work at this big company, and he did a presentation, and someone walked up to him and said, you're very articulate. Well, he had a law degree, <laughs> you know, from a fairly highbrow law school and he'd worked at all these places. Why wouldn't he be articulate? And in a way, I, I suppose she meant it as a compliment. You know, I, I, I suppose she did, but it's, it's suggesting that I didn't expect you to be. So 
you do really sort of, you know, it, it's it's a very strange feeling, but it's also a strange feeling to walk into a setting, you know, as, as I did once where there's a room full of people and you are the only person who looks like you in that room. And you are expected to function just as everyone else does, just as, as with every bit of ease and comfort that everyone else there does. And it, it's, it's, it's difficult to describe the feeling because you do feel a sense of isolation, but you feel like you're on a stage and that you have to, you have to perform. And this is when the whole issue of representation comes in because you feel like I, I, I have to, I have to prove that I deserve to be here in ways that many people don't, because if I don't succeed, they'll never hire another person who looks like me. I had a conversation a while back with Chris DeSantis, who is the author of a book, Why I Find You Irritating. And the book is about generational differences. But I'm really hearing a parallel here. One of the things that Chris says about generational differences is it's okay to recognize that they exist. The fault is in assuming everybody fits the stereotype. And the other piece that that really brings to mind for me, and it's, it's something that I'm working on with a lot of my clients, is whether it's a leader or whether it's a frontline employee, that's a whole person. It's not a shipping clerk. It's not an executive director. It's a whole person. And we have to get to know people as people, not just as the roles they fill, not just as the however we want to stereotype them. Shannon, you brought up another topic when we were preparing for this recording, which is quiet quitting. In my generation, we called it retiring on the job. <laughs> yeah. Talk about quiet quitting in the context of leaders of color and, and really uh, employees of color. Yeah. So, you know, quiet quitting has reemerged or been retitled uh, and is a it's a phenomena that organizations are seeing across the board. And it's the idea that, you know, it's employees are either burned out, they need to find some balance. And so the way that they do that is by showing up to work and just not putting their all into it or not giving it their best shot, just getting by. The reality is, is that leaders of color cannot quite quit. If leaders of color were to come in and not give their best, not give their best shot, it wouldn't be quite quitting. It would be you're fired, right? So leaders of color have no choice but to either come in, give it their all, even if they're in situations where it's not in alignment to their values, they're not finding balance or completely quitting altogether. And you're actually seeing more leaders of color quitting jobs, not quiet quitting, but quitting jobs. Um, and the concern that I have as a coach, I, I'm seeing that quite a bit, is then you know working with clients to make sure that if they're leaving a, a, a position or moving to a team or moving to you know an entirely new organization, that they're really clear about their own personal values about their own needs and about what they need from management and from the organization to not repeat what they just left from. How do you find that out? It really, it's about getting, first, it's about getting clear as an individual on what you stand for, what's important to you, what you value, truly value, and what you desire. And then it's mapping that during your interview process. How am I able to identify the values of this organization? What does it say on their website? What values would I say were actually uh, shared with me? And did I get a sense of in reality during the interview in talking to other team members? I often stress with my clients 
um, and, and leaders of color, particularly, that the interview process is just as much about you making sure that it's a good fit, not just getting the job. In one of our podcasts, I talk with one of our coaches about feedback. And one of the things that comes out in that conversation is everything is feedback. So these may be our values on the website. And how are they reflected to me in my interaction with you? I, I think that's a yes. great piece of insight. So thank you. Well, one of the things I'd like to say, if, if I may, is that I think the problem is often more pronounced with people of color because it's more visible and it's it's it, and, and sometimes it actually is more pronounced. But I think it's I think it's a problem across the board. And, and Shannon talked earlier about, you know, dealing with people as individuals. And I think that's the important thing. But, you know, I do a lot of work in, in diversity, equity, inclusion. And, you know, we, we talk about allowing people to bring their whole selves to work. And some of the things that we do, you know, that we think are cultural norms that are social norms that are business norms really leave out other people. You know, people come from, regardless of race or ethnicity, come from different kinds of cultural backgrounds and religious backgrounds, different kinds of upbringing. You know, I'm coaching a man now who who was a, as a father who was the primary caregiver to the children and is dealing with the whole idea that people are thinking, well, fathers don't do this. Well, he does. You know, so it certainly has a very obvious impact on, on, on leaders of color because they're fewer to start with. And it really it really impacts the ability to, to recruit people and retain people. But I think it has a, a broader it's a broader problem and it, it actually hurts the organization across the board. That's a great point. Again, I was thinking as you were talking earlier, Robert, about being the only person in the room expected to act the norm. A great example of that is networking events. Yeah. And there are those people who are extroverts. And there are those people who are introverts. And introverts don't do well at networking events. Right. Again, they're terrified of the thought that they have to. Small talk. <laughs> I'm sorry, Shannon. I said small talk. You know, that's the introvert's <laughs> worst nightmare. Yes. Hand raised. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah. So again, that brings us to really knowing the whole person and not expecting Shannon or Robert to respond to a situation the same way Brian would. Not expecting Brian to respond respond to a situation that Shannon, the same way Shannon might. So what counsel can you give to our listeners beyond what we've already talked about in terms of how they might support leaders of color? I think one of the things organizations need to do is re-examine standards and really question what's the basis of where are there Im implicit biases included in those, those standards. And we, we may, there are certain hard skills that people have, but rarely is a job these days the sum of it, the hard skills. And so when we recruit people, we talk about all the other things we need them to be that we need them to do. And we really need to examine that to see which ones of these, these things are really requirements to do the job and how many people are we leaving out by uh, requiring these kinds of things. Robert, when you say that, just saw and have not had time to read yet an article about a woman of color who has reached a very senior level. And one of the things she has always insisted on is that she have a dress code for herself that's appropriate to her culture and her sense of being, not to that of the corporation. And to me, that's such a good example, Robert, of the standards that you're talking about. It is. And, and Shannon, I probably don't have to tell you this. And it's it's died down now, but but it still exists. There was a huge tug of war in corporate America a few years ago over, over black women in hair. 
mm-hmm. and, and black men in hair, but to a greater extent, black women in hair. The whole idea of what hairdos should look like. And, you know, we don't want locks and we don't want this and we don't want, you know. And years ago, there was a lawsuit in the Baltimore Fire Department over this, over requiring firefighters to shave. Black men in particular are less likely to shave because they're more likely to suffer from folliculitis. So if someone, you know, and, and there are a lot of things that really are unaddressed in, in corporate speak. The dress code doesn't say you have to be clean shaven. But, you know, when I started interviewing after college, people were saying, you need to shave your goatee. Well, do I go with a goatee or do I go with a bunch of hair bumps? So, um, and, but if you're sitting there as a hiring manager and you think he's got facial hair and I don't like men with facial hair. So there are a lot of things like that that really are not written into corporate codes, but that really are, are in the minds of the managers. And I think companies really have to examine both the standards that they create, how they are applied, and, and really talk to hiring managers about what they are seeing and what they're expecting when they hire people. There are a few things that come to mind in ways that organizations could, could better support their leaders of color. A trend that I've seen happen post-George Floyd in 2020 is that organizations, it was the start of the awakening, right? I call it the start, not the awakening, but the start of an awakening. Oh my goodness, you know, thinking about their outward and how clients, you know, client facing and what they're doing, particularly around DEI and equity and, you know, race consciousness. So they thought about outward. Then they started to think inward. And what organizations turn to is this doubling down on DEI training, which has its place and is, is great. There are a few things with that, though, that, you, you know, it's not a one and done. So you can't just bring in a consultant, have DEI, and then forget about it. I really feel as though, you know, leaders need to begin within themselves and look within because that's really what culture, culture is created by individuals. So the individuals need to look within and change themselves individually and look at their biases. But then also sometimes I've been part of DEI trainings that have been more harmful to me than good. It may have been helpful to the majority of the white folks in the, in the room, but for me as a black woman, I'm sitting in there and I'm actually more traumatized after going through DEI training than I was before. So organizations should, one, think about that. And so alongside that, it's thinking how do we provide individualized support for our leaders of color? And coaching is one of the best ways to do so. Yes. Without a doubt. Also mentorships. You know, and there's an issue of we've been talking about, about representation. And so at a potential organization, there may not be enough um, representation of certain demographics to, to provide mentorship pairing. I think organizations and companies should think about partnering, cross mentorship, you know, between organizations. But mentorship is huge because that's something that most leaders don't have. They don't have another mentor that's in their field that looks like them. Um, and then affinity spaces within their organization, giving time and space for uh, members of certain, again, certain demographics, cultures, uh, gender identity, LGBTQ communities, you know, to, to come together and have a safe space to be able to talk, to strategize and to commune with one another. And, and if I can pick up on that last point just for a second, I think organizations need to be uh, open-minded I'll use that term, open-minded about people who don't come from the prevailing culture to talk about what it's like to be different. Because 
you know, black folks talk about what it's like to be black in the workplace. Latinos talk about what it's like to be Latino. Immigrants talk about what it's like to be immigrants. LGBTQ people talk about that. So, you know, if, if, if they can do it in a safe space, then they really can provide insight that the senior managers of those organizations can then use in, in helping develop those leaders. I've really appreciated this conversation and, and all aspects of it. Robert, you gave me something new just now to think about. One of the questions that I often coach my clients to ask is, what gets you up and excited about coming to work every day? And most managers, if they can answer for themselves, and some can't, have no clue as to what that answer is for those people who work for them. What's it like to be you coming to work for me? Mm-hmm. I love that question. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Robert, for a personal and insightful conversation about a topic that's important for all of us. Thank you, Brian. Thank you.